Good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, my name is Pastor Jason. Um, I am the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor is uh, playing at Disneyland this morning. Uh, he's on vacation, so it's great. We're happy for them. They love to go down to Disneyland. To me, that's the most frightening scenario possible for my family. I never want to go. I never want to go. We'll watch the movies, and it's, it's better. Um, we've been going through uh, the story, of course, the, the grand narrative of Scripture, and we finally got into the New Testament. Last week, uh, Pastor Joshua talked about the boyhood of Jesus, and so we're going to pick it up. Uh, pick it up there this morning. I want to examine particularly how Jesus loved people in his ministry, uh, especially uh, how his love is different than modern day tolerance. Okay? Now, tolerance is probably the highest virtue of American society today. Would you agree? Or, or very high up there. Um, the problem is when we Christians talk about love versus tolerance, we often end up uh, making both of them look a little bit silly when we, when we broach this topic. So, uh, in fact, I would say this. We end up with two different pictures. We end up with this one. That's Jesus as a boxer. That's right. Or this one. We end up either talking about how love tells brutal truths no matter who it is, or tolerance winks at truth no matter what it is. You see what I'm saying? And so it's very difficult to uh, uh, be even-handed in this kind of discussion, but I'm going to do my best this morning uh, and uh, uh, try to figure out how Jesus did it. Um, this, this particular uh, dichotomy, um, it, it, it breaks down quickly. Um, and so if we look at the way that Jesus treated people, I'm pretty sure that there's a way forward uh, that can speak to this generation that's, that sees something good in the tolerance thing, and it also speaks to the church where we've overdone it at times. And, and I, I, I'm never one to try to find, let's find the, the space in between that's just the perfect and everyone's happy. Um, that's not what this is about. This is about finding the way that Jesus actually did things and doing it his way. Okay? So... Here's where I just want to pick up the story. Um, Joshua, like I said, talked about uh, Jesus as a boy. And the last thing we see in the, in the, uh, uh, the book of Luke about Jesus as a boy is, is uh, these words. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now that means he had to actually learn things. He had to increase in wisdom. He had to study and he had to apparently develop a relationship with the Father. Now, this uh, is very consistent with what we hear in Philippians 2, that Jesus emptied himself, that he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself of those things, sort of put them on a shelf for a while, as it were. So he emptied himself of things like his unlimited power. We see a couple of times in Scripture when he gets very, very weak and an angel has to come and minister strength to him. So he left his omnipotence on the shelf. We see where he asks questions that he, he actually, unless he's being very sarcastic, doesn't know the answer to. So he put his omniscience as well on the shelf. He actually had to learn, it says in Luke 2. He had to study the Scriptures. He had to get closer to God by, by uh, uh, developing a relationship with him. So the next time we see Jesus, the next time he shows up in the scriptures, he's an adult and he's going to get baptized. He goes to his cousin John to be baptized. And here's what happened. 
Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the Father acknowledges him, and the Holy Spirit comes down and fills him. Can we see that? The Holy Spirit comes down right there and fills him. Now, he begins to rally his disciples to him after himself. And if we're just going through the story very quickly, he goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. The, uh, the devil comes to him and tempts him, and Jesus resists. Even though he's very weak, he resists. And he does so by the word of God, which he had put into himself over years of preparation. You see that? In other words, Jesus filled himself with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. Both of these are essential parts of his ministry. You see, he didn't look on a study of Scripture as something dull and whatever, and, well, we just do it because we have to. It was a vibrant part of his ministry. It was a vibrant part of his personal development, his personal walk with God. It was the way that he, that he countered the temptations of the enemy. When the enemy comes with some sort of accusation and he says, it is written. It was a profound and powerful part of his ministry. Likewise, the indwelling Holy Spirit, a powerful factor in his ministry. There are many things I'm sure he wouldn't have done unless the Holy Spirit had whispered into his ear and says, go this way, go this way, touch this person. So here's where we want to pick up the story then, the wedding at Cana, just after his baptism. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite stories. I don't even know why. It just intrigues me. Part of it, I think, is I love, I love the thought of Jesus partying, first of all. Um, I know we've all seen the Jesus movies where he's like, And everything's like Shakespearean almost. And it's like, I just don't think he was like that. He was partying for days with these people. And he actually, well, he seems to maybe have actually liked them. He had a good time. He went to feasts. He laughed. He got to know people. So here he is at this feast. We don't know who was getting married. We simply know they must have been friends with his family. His mother was invited and he was invited and they said, go ahead and bring your entourage. Now, it's very possible, by the way, that his entourage of disciples was all teenagers. We can't prove that. There's many scholars that point very strongly in that direction. So you've got Jesus and a whole bunch of you guys with him. And let me tell you, these guys can eat. So these guys were inviting <laughs> the you know, to this big feast. And, and weddings, of course, today are a big deal, but not like they were back then. These were, these were things that would go on for days and days. So you fed people coming from villages a long ways away, and they would stay, and they would throw out their sleeping bags at night, and they'd get up, and they'd eat some more of your food, and they'd drink some more of your wine, and you'd dance some more, and you'd laugh some more, and then you would go to bed going, oh, dear, when are these people going to leave? And then you'd wake up, and you'd do it all again. And so to take care of these people, it was understood culturally, this is a huge part uh, of the way they did life. And here's what happens. After days of this feast, and everyone's been hanging out, having a good time, something terrible happens. Well, it might not be terrible to us because we could just run down to the Bymart. But then, when you run out of wine, this is potentially a humiliating situation. When you could not take care of the people that were sleeping on your floor, what are you going to do? So Jesus, uh, his mother comes to him, and she says, Jesus, we're out of wine. 
Notice that's all she says. She doesn't say, can you use some of that Holy Spirit power stuff? To... He, she, doesn't, she just says, we're out of wine. And he's like, so? <laughs> She's like, we're out of wine. <laughs> it's not my time yet. What are you doing? Not yet. No. Jesus? Jesus? She, she's still his mother. And he's still a son. <laughs> fully God and fully son, right? So he, he, he spends his first miracle turning water into wine for a party. I love this. I, I, I love it. See, it wasn't for some huge ministry purpose whatsoever. It wasn't so that everybody could come to the revival service later on that day because so many people would be talking about the water to wine incident. In fact, Jesus almost always when he's doing miracles is telling people, shh, please keep this under wraps. He's trying to avoid the crowds. He's just trying to bless people where they're actually at. This had no ministry purpose whatsoever. It had to do specifically so that the friends of his family would not be embarrassed. Isn't that cool? Jesus cares about our needs and the things we're going through. Not all, not, we, we, sit, we tend to think about, so that your glory may be heard from east to west. And he's like, I just want to bless you. That's good, isn't it? I thought that was good. Teresa thought that was good. Thank you, Teresa. So, so uh, Jesus makes wine, and he, he, with a sort of very practical, dusty hands sort of compassion, performs his first miracle. So, word spreads anyway, even though he doesn't want it to spread. Jesus is a miracle worker. And so he goes and he teaches, but wherever he goes, people bring in the sick, they bring in the demonized, they bring in the desperate, and he welcomes them. And he welcomes the most extreme cases, such as the lepers. You guys, those of you who have seen, uh, um, you know, seen the movie Ben-Hur, that's a great example of leprosy back in the day, or, wa- or, or read the, the, the book, um, get a, a good sense of this. Lepers, to be a leper, that was, that was a death sentence, man. I mean, you had to leave. You had to leave society and join a leper colony, and, and you were ostracized, and you could not come out of your circle unless to go get food or water or something. And when you saw people, you would have to tell them from a long distance off that you had this. You would have to call yourself unclean, 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 so they wouldn't come near you and catch what you had. And here, in one of these scenes, Jesus is walking through, he's healing people, and suddenly there's a leper. What do you think happened to that crown? <gasps> Parting of the Red Sea, again. What does Jesus do? Okay, you're healed. No, he doesn't do that. He actually comes right down to him, kneels down, and touches him. Would you like to be healed? Yes. And he heals him. Jesus is not only a miracle worker, he begins to be known as one who touches lepers and one who tickles children and one who has compassion for crowds wherever he goes. Yes, there's the power, but there's also this thing about him that people are drawn to. He loves, see. More than anything else, Jesus becomes known for his compassion. And today, more than anything else, he's known for his compassion. But, you say, yeah, he also threw over tables. Well, he did. This is true. He threw over tables. He was very upset about the foreigners being ostracized in the temple, the only place they had to pray, and how they had turned that 
section into a massive flea market, and these poor people who had traveled hundreds of miles couldn't even pray in peace because people were trying to sell doves there. So he got very upset. That's true. That's true. Too many people use this incident as an excuse to be a jerk. I'm just going to say it. It's true. So many are like, yeah, I told them what, but like, you were kind of a jerk. Yeah, but Jesus threw over tables. Yeah, okay. Are, yeah, that's, that's just the same as what you did. You just yelled at that guy because he was voting for a different candidate than you were. It's very similar. It's exactly the same. It's, it's silly. Jesus loved. He had compassion. So which one of these is the real Jesus then? Is it the one who tells the brutal truths or the one who gives thumbs up to everything? Well, let's look at an example of how he treats people with whom he disagrees. John 3. Nicodemus. We hear the story of Nicodemus, and we have to keep in mind who he was. Nicodemus was supposedly one of the people that Jesus despised, right? Because we know that Jesus loved the, the, the ones who are marginalized or, or poor or whatever, uh, but he did not like the Pharisees, except that's not true. He actually treated everyone with love and respect. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. These guys were opposing him at every turn. They were trying to kill him often. There was always some plot to get rid of him. They were always trying to discredit him. They were a constant thorn in his ministry. And Nicodemus comes to him at night. There was a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this is a powerful man as well. Not just a religious man, but a powerful man. One who Jesus isn't supposed to like. This man came to him by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. He's coming at night. He's coming at night. Are you getting the picture here? Okay, listen. I'm not supposed to tell you this. I'm not even supposed to be here. You know, he's probably got his hood down like this. Okay, listen. Here's the truth. We know you're from God because you're doing all this stuff. But, but what, what? He doesn't even get a question out. Jesus seems to cut him off and know exactly what he's saying. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Now this, he, he is reading into the real question on Nicodemus' heart. You see, you, you seem to be from God, Jesus. And, uh, well, we're just kind of wondering, like, uh, well, okay, like, what do we, okay, like, we're really good people, right? Because we keep button heads, but we're really good people. We do all the things right, right? So what, I mean, we, we are going to be in the kingdom, right? Because, because, I mean, why are you so mad at us? Because we're going to be in the kingdom because we do good things, right? Isn't that, please, Unless you're born again, unless you start over, unless you're born of spirit, unless you let your old rotting self die, you're not going to see the kingdom, Nicodemus. Look at how he treats him. He doesn't say, what the heck, man? Your people are such jerks. Please, can you tell them to lay off? And let me tell you something. Oh, I know about Barabbas, or whatever, I don't know. I know about your buddy there and all the things that he does. And I know about Larry Jumas and him and all these people. And I'm so tired of it, man. And what the heck? He doesn't do that. Nor does he say, where's your table? Because I'm going to come and flip it over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't do any of that. He brings him in. He accepts him. He converses with him. He does not condemn him. 
He sits and he has a late night conversation, maybe over a glass of wine. And he sits and he, he says, Nicodemus, listen, here's the truth. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. He might have put his hand on his shoulder. Can we just imagine? I know, obviously, I'm just throwing out hypotheticals here. I probably lost like 15 of you with that wine comment, but they all drank wine. That's what they drank. It's very diluted, but that's what they drank. So he put his hand, maybe he puts his hand on his shoulder and says, hey, you're going to have to be born again. That's how I read it. I don't hear screaming here. I hear a discussion full of compassion and, and uh, one who listens. This is how he treats his enemies. If, if he has enemies, it would have been one of these guys, and this is how he treats him. He gives them a hard truth at the same time, doesn't he? He doesn't say, you know, yeah, you're right. You've done enough. You've done a lot of good stuff. You're good. Sure, you can enter the kingdom. He doesn't tell him that either. He tells him the truth. But he tells him the truth in the midst of compassion, and he does not cut off relationship with him. There's my boy. Hey, Jack. Jesus adamantly refuses to marginalize or intimidate others. He embraces them, whether he agrees with them or he disagrees with them. It's not that he won't tell them the truth. He will, but he refuses to marginalize and he refuses to push them away or define them by that thing. So, I don't believe either of these are correct. I think love chooses to engage. It chooses to say the hard things when necessary. Yes, but it keeps on engaging. It does not build a wall between relationships. It pulls a person closer because that's the best thing for them, to come close and, yes, to hear the truth in time. That is the way that Jesus treated those with whom he disagreed with. So what I'm telling you, do I think tolerance is thin? Yes, I do, and I'm gonna talk about that in a second. I, I think it's a weak term. I think it's a cheap substitute for love. But in the midst of, of confronting the weakness of tolerance, we should not elevate truth to where that love is maybe somewhere under there. They just needed to hear that. They just needed to hear that. Oh, did they? From you in that way, really? Do you see what I'm saying? That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't go, okay, I'm just gonna say it, all right? He, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't act that way. He didn't act that way. This lovely lady. Yeah, right? <laughs> I win. <laughs> 17 years in May, we'll have been married. Yeah, right? And we've had to continue to choose love, and it's been easier for me because, well, <laughs> um, it's, it has been difficult at times uh, uh, I'm sure for me, I can't remember too many times, but I know that it's been difficult for her at times. I know that for a fact, <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> was that Wayne? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> he says an amen in there. Um, we, uh, when, when we moved here, um, you know, I, a lot of you guys know my story and, and we're dealing with my son's uh, autism diagnosis and my other son's uh, heart diagnosis and all these things. And it, it really crippled me spiritually and emotionally for quite a while. In fact, some of you guys didn't know because I would put a good face on it. But those of you who knew me knew that, oh, my gosh, like I was in a <laughs> I was I was not very fun to be around. 
I, I, was, I was miserable, and, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to pull out of that. And through a whole bunch of ministry from, from our team here and from Doug and from Joshua and Ren, all these guys constantly picking me up and praying for me and, and, and a whole lot of love, I was finally able to pull out of that, but it took a couple of years, well after I came on staff here. And, and I remember specifically how I would, I would be doing really well when, he, when, my, when my boy was doing well, and then when he would go backwards maybe for a season um, in his development, how I would just crash and burn and just feel like, oh, here it comes again. And I remember during one of these seasons where my wife gets in my face and she says, listen, you can be sad, but you cannot go back to where you were. You cannot. I need you and the kids need you. So this depression and this perpetual sadness cannot attach itself to you this time. Well, I think that was a little mean of her. <laughs> I was a little mean-spirited. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I was being authentic. I was super bummed. I was being authentic. I'm just letting out, this is how I feel, all right? How I feel is I don't want to talk to anybody and I want to be sad. And I just want to be by myself, so everybody go away. And Joshua, stop smiling. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's really hard to be depressed when you work with Joshua and Jeff Starr and Red Crab. <laughs> They're always on cloud nine, and you're like picking you up. I'm like, <sighs> so here I am trying to be sad, wife, so leave me alone. But do you see, what, see how love is different than tolerance? Do you see it? You see, tolerance would have said, Take as much time as you need while me and the kids feel distant from you. You just go right ahead. Yeah, you go and have to crash and burn these lessons over and over again. That's fine. You just go and do that. We'll stay here and be miserable. You see, but she didn't do that. She gave me the hard truth, but you guys, she did not do it in building a wall. Do you see the difference? Tolerance is cheap. Tolerance is an imposter. It is not love. It does not choose to engage. Tolerance is passive. It's pure passivity. Love chooses to engage even when it's difficult. And it chooses to love even when it's difficult. And it chooses to embrace, to hug a person even when they're being a jerk. That's the difference between love and tolerance. Tolerance is all about this internal alignment. And it's fake because we're not all internally aligned anyway. We have different thoughts. We have different feelings. We can try to be politically correct about them. In the end, we know it's a sham. You're never going to think the same thing and feel the same thing as somebody else. So we might as well admit it and then say, now what are we going to do? And Jesus says, now you're going to love. Now you're going to love like Sarah. That's like Jesus. So, my question is, how would Jesus treat those with he disagreed with? Ready for this? You didn't see this coming, I promise. How would Jesus treat those he disagreed with during this election season? Would he have yelled and broken relationships so that he could get his man or his woman elected? Would he have sacrificed relationship for the sake of a candidate? I cannot possibly imagine a realm in which that's true. 
I cannot possibly imagine. Would Jesus have gotten sucked into the political spirit of the day? I cannot possibly believe that he would have. And yes, we do have a political spirit of the day. We do. And it's so divided and it's so insane because you might you never ever even confront the realms that you're, that you're voting for in another person. You might agree on that. You might be best friends with a person, but if you find out that they vote differently, suddenly that person, I, I don't even want to, how could you? And we, you see this? How weak is this? And the body of Christ is right in the middle of it. But I don't see Jesus treating people that way. So I don't want to treat people that way. And I don't want you to treat people that way. I want this body to be a body that looks for a relationship first. Does that mean we don't have opinions? Of course not. Does that mean civil government doesn't matter? Of course not. Does that mean we don't vote? Of course not. But it means we embrace the person regardless of whether or not we agree. Because we're going to disagree. And if we're only going to embrace a person with whom we agree with, then we're no better than those who are pronouncing tolerance all the time. Like, we have to be perfectly aligned in order to be in relationship. And you guys, I, I really don't want our church to, to, to get sucked up in that. I'm not saying this because I think this is happening. I haven't seen this. I, the election's about to come, and I know the way that I can end up feeling and I think we need to guard ourselves from that because that's an attack of the enemy. That's a political spirit. And it attaches itself to so many congregations and so many Christians because we think, we're not going to be these tolerant people. We're going to speak out because love speaks truth. So believe like I do. <laughs> love does speak. Yeah. But it doesn't, it shouldn't, shouldn't speak if it doesn't know how to hug. You know what I'm saying? So. Jesus was not tolerant. He wasn't. But he loved fiercely. And I want to be like that. I want to love fiercely. Even if it's people who are voting for everything that I abhor. I still want to love that person because this is what we're called to, you see. We're called to expand the family of God. And that doesn't begin with politics usually. Do you hear me? It doesn't begin there. Very rarely are you going to see somebody's political views suddenly change and believe what you think is kingdom and then they meet Jesus. It is a very silly, naive expectation that we would have of the world that they would get all their views just right, whatever we think right is, before... They come to him. And our job is to bring them to Jesus. I want that to be what we're about here. Yes, we will be involved in civil government. Please hear me. Yes, we will have opinions. Yes, there are kingdom principles that we hold up. But the biggest kingdom principle of all is love your neighbor as yourself. How can we love those with whom we disagree? Here's my suggestion. Be like Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. You see, it doesn't happen automatically. Sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes loving those with whom we disagree is very difficult. So we fill our minds with the Word. We fill our hearts with the Spirit. And we say, Lord, help me to love like you. Help me to love those with whom I completely disagree. Help me to embrace the person, even if I don't embrace the beliefs, 
lifestyle, whatever that is. And you know what, guys? I believe that's a worthy prayer that he will answer. Let's stand. Lord, I pray that you would protect this house from the, from the uh, political spirit that would seek to divide. Lord, I pray you would help us to love our neighbors just like you do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be teachable. And Lord, in the process, I pray that we could stand firm on your word and not give where we're not supposed to, to, to give an inch. Help us to walk like your son walked. Help us to minister like your son ministered. And Lord, help us to bring your sons and daughters into the kingdom, those who are still orphaned, those who trust fully in all kinds of different solutions, but not your son. Lord, help us to introduce them to your son. Lord, have mercy on our community. Lord, give us the heart for those around us that you have. We will give you praise and honor and glory for it. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. amen. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful week. The prayer servant team is here if anybody needs prayer for anything.